things are reading. Well, Christmas is just one week away. You're all ready, I'm sure. All those plans are set, but there's still so many details to get done. Uh, fighting the crowds at HEB, always fun. Social gatherings to juggle. If you're anything like me, you have every one of your Christmas gifts to buy. Well, I'm grateful for Amazon wish lists. And if you're parents, I'm sure you're excited to have the kids home for the whole week. No chaos. No pressure. But don't stress. You are here in church. It's a perfect time to take a deep breath, center ourselves in God. Let's breathe in. I take from my text this morning the 10th verse of the 64th chapter of Isaiah. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Pray with me. God of hope, God of peace, God of joy, God of love, be with us in this time to come that we can hear the promptings of your still, small voice. In the late 6th century BC, in my imagination anyway, the man who had the largest leather goods shop in the city of Jerusalem had five children, all boys, the youngest of whom his wife named Isaiah, a common Hebrew name. This, Isaiah's family, had not been one of the exiles. They had always been in Jerusalem after the Babylonians conquered the city and took away the leaders into, into, into Babylon. And now, as a successful business owner, Isaiah's father was a well-respected citizen. And then the exiles returned home. Isaiah could still remember when that happened. All of a sudden, several thousand people had shown up at the gates of the city, having endured the long, dusty journey from Babylon. When the exiles returned, they assumed that they would be leaders in their community once again, as their grandfathers had been. But those, like Isaiah's family, and the others who had always spent their time in Jerusalem, were not so excited to have these exiles back. Think about it, there were no jobs for the thousands who returned. No way for them to make a living. Food was scarce. But it was the arguments that young Isaiah heard around his father's dinner table with his father's friends and older brothers that defined this period of his youth. Isaiah and his friends complained constantly about these returned Israelites, about their arrogance, about their laziness, about the claims to property that they claimed that they had because their ancestors owned it generations before. But the biggest argument, one that divided the community in Jerusalem like nothing else, was over the rebuilding of the temple. The exiles, accompanied to the, accustomed to the grandeur of Babylon, then the largest city in the Near East, griped about the small size and relative poverty of Jerusalem. It had not been as their grandfathers had described. Their return, they returned expecting a grand city, the city of David and Solomon, but instead they found a modest collection of homes with very few external signs of wealth. 
Why rebuild the temple? Isaiah's father and his friends complained and complained. It was from their purses that the money would come that the money would come from. And as the wine flowed around the dinner table, their tempers began to flare. Isaiah just sat and listened. His father generally ignored him, the runt of the family. He was not big and strong like his older brothers, who worked alongside their father in the shop. Whenever he had the chance, Isaiah would go off and find Zechariah and the other rabbis from the synagogue. Isaiah's father never complained about his absences. and Isaiah doubted he even noticed. Compared with the violent tempers at home, compared with the tensions around the city, the wise rabbi seemed like an oasis of peace to that young Isaiah. There, with them, on the first glimpses of joy. This Advent, we've been exploring the nature of prophecy through the lens of the book of Isaiah. As I mentioned two weeks ago, scholars have long divided the book of Isaiah into three parts which correspond to the different historical contexts that explain the changing natures of the prophecies that we find throughout the books, throughout the book. These sermons the past few weeks have attempted to imagine that what those ancient Isaiahs were like, so we can place ourselves in their shoes and learn more about what it might mean to be a prophet. In the first sermon, I argued that prophets don't so much predict the future as announce a vision from God that draws people towards it. Prophecies are not trapped in a specific time or place, but get reinterpreted each, for each new day when these prophecies are read and preached on. Prophecies, by imagining a new God-centered reality, give us hope as they show us what God wants for us all. Last Sunday, last Sunday I looked more specifically at what gives prophets their vision, their ability to see and discern the signs of the times. Inevitably, prophets are separated from society. They seek out the time and space to be alone, which removes them from the echo chambers of their compatriots. Prophets are also grounded in regular faith practices. These faith practices allow them to be molded by God's view of the world and not the cynicism cynicism that so often reigns, especially in uncertain times. The separation from those around them and religious rituals provide peace, wholeness, while others get locked in cycles of negativity. Today, we look at something quite different. On this, the third Sunday in Advent, we explore the source of prophetic joy. As Isaiah spent more and more time with local rabbis, with the local rabbis, and away from the chaos of his home, he gradually learned to read Hebrew. A quiet and introverted boy Reading opened up a whole new world to him. All through his teenage years, he pored over the ancient scrolls that made up the sacred texts of the faith. Whenever his father or his father's friends would begin arguing about the new temple and the returned exiles, Isaiah would slip out of the house and make his way down the narrow Jerusalem streets to the synagogue. The old rabbi would smile every time he walked through the door. Isaiah came so frequently that he had his own chair and desk marked out. In the evenings, the rabbis even let him use some of the precious oil in the lamps to read. Zechariah, the lead rabbi, cautioned him that he'd wear out his eyes if he kept reading so much. But Isaiah didn't pay attention to that. Reading gave him joy. Joy that was so absent in his home life. Then one day, Isaiah took some blank parchment for himself. 
It had been a gift from Zechariah for his birthday. His favorite prophet was Isaiah, his namesake. Both the writings of the original Isaiah and those of the prophet who had died not long before. That first day he began to write, he felt something change within him. Lost all conception of time. Surely the working of God, Isaiah told himself. Using his slate and chalk, he would write out the phrases like the prophets of old. Then, when he knew the words were just right, he would dip his pen in the fine ink and let his hand glide over the fine parchment. His writing combined the words and themes that the two previous Isaiahs had used. He felt, he knew in his inward being that he was a true inheritor of their prophecies. All the pent-up emotion from his father's dinner table that he so, so infrequently shared because of his introverted nature came gushing out. Criticisms of the abuses of the ruling class. He would point out the hypocrisy of the priestly elite at the temple. But in the midst of these criticisms that filled his prophecies were also visions for God's new kingdom, God's new Jerusalem, that Isaiah insisted would come. God's word was good news, good news for everyone in Jerusalem, the exiles and those who remained. Whenever he finished writing, lost to the cares of the world, he would have tears streaming down his cheeks. All his life, he had never known joy like that. The joy that came from living into his calling from God. Joy wasn't always there. It didn't happen every time. When it did, he knew that he'd found God. Have you ever had a joyful moment? like that of Isaiah described? Which shape does joy take in your life? When I lived in Iowa, I met someone who became a good friend named Mike. Mike was studying in a research lab at Iowa State University over the summer. He was a non-traditional student and had gone through some pretty tough times in his life. I'll never forget, at the end of the summer... We were grabbing coffee, and he shared with me about the final dinner that he had with his fellow members of his lab. As the dinner was winding down, Mike got up from the table, found the waitress, and paid for the whole meal. Mike had saved up his money during the summer, holding down a quite taxing job on the side, and then spent most of what he had left to treat his lab mates to a meal. As he described it to me that day, he was glowing with contentment. He had not grown up with much money and had never in his life been able to do something like that before. But the chance to surprise the people he cared about and had worked alongside every seller with an extravagant gift brought him unmitigated joy. The great Roman Catholic spiritual writer Henry Nouwen once described the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is dependent on external things. We're happy when good things happen to us, when we have an experience that is pleasing to our senses. A good meal can make us happy, or watching a fun movie, or spending time with friends. Joy, on the other hand, according to now and at least, is something that's internal. Joy comes from a deeper place inside us. For now and his joy was based on the knowledge that God loved, that God loved him and accepted him unconditionally. Whenever Nowen felt that love, he was filled with joy, regardless of his, of his external circumstances. I would broaden the, con- the conception of joy beyond our experiences of God. Joy comes from doing something we feel called to do. 
something that resonates with who we are. Joy is rooted in deep bonds, bonds with others, with ourselves, and with the divine. Feel it, and defy easy it can defy easy description. My father's greatest joy in life came from time with his family, and in particular with his children. Time with his family was not always happy. Kids, after all, from what I'm told, can be stressful and frustrating. Although, not us when we were kids, but... But there was something deep within him that even when times with his family were not fun, necessarily, or not happy, they still brought him an immense sense of joy, especially if it had to do with his children. My father made every effort to be present at things we were doing as kids. He was at nearly every sporting contest I had in high school or college. He attended every sermon I preached until his health prevented him from doing so. I remember him saying how much he hated watching my wrestling matches. It took every fiber of his self-control, he once said, not to get up from the stands and beat up my opponent. <laughs> wrestling is not a pretty sport. The singlets are rarely flattering. Wrestlers often get cauliflower ear from trauma. Bloody noses, mat burns, bruises are all a part of the sport. The greatest matches are the close ones, where each wrestler has to strain to the maximum, ex maximum ex extent possible, where you find yourself fighting off your back and executing difficult moves that, that give you one point here, one point there. It's exhausting mentally and physically. Even though I won far more matches than I lost, it was emotionally painful for my father to watch me. Yet he kept coming. His love for me, his pride in me, far away the emotional roller coaster that my wrestling matches put him through. Sitting in the stands might not always have given my father much happiness, but it brought him tremendous joy. The kind of joy that only a parent can understand. The frustrating thing about joy is how fleeting it can be. We have these great, joyful moments. Moments when we get lost in our favorite activity, when we can do something special for people we care about, when we're filled with pride and love for others, when we're in the midst of fulfilling our vocation. But the rest of the time, joy can seem absent. Why can't we live a joyful life all the time? But when we think about it, could it be any other way? As Augustine of Hippo, the great church father, said about the good, we only understand what is good in the context of what is not good. Without suffering, without difficult experiences, we have no conception of the good. We cannot be drawn to God, drawn to the divine, unless we know that there are things that are not God. The same thing holds true for joy. How can we know true joy if joy is the only experience of life? It's only through experiencing things that are sorrowful, difficult, draining internally, that we can appreciate truly what is joy. The key for us as Christians and as humans is to consider how we can be more joyful, how we can know more joy, or how we can know joy more fully in our lives. And that requires thinking deeply about what it is that brings you joy. What is the source of joy for you? My close friend Shelby used to live in a large three-bedroom apartment in Cambridge. That apartment, in part because of its size, had large common areas and an expansive outdoor deck. That space gave Shelby a chance to host people at his apartment for both impromptu and scheduled social gatherings. And how he relished those gatherings, Shelby is the ultimate host, warm and inviting, a master conversationalist. He has the gift of, make, of making people feel truly welcomed in his home 
regardless of who the person is. In addition, he's one of the finest chefs I know. Time and again, I showed up at his Cambridge apartment to find gatherings of people, diverse groups of people, laughing, chatting, and enjoying themselves. But the one person who was most full of joy was the host himself. Rushing around from his ever-busy stove to his well-stocked bar to greeting one person after another, Shelby was in his environment. Those gatherings were not without stress for Shelby, but the joy on his face was, uh, was unmistakable for all who saw it. Now, Shelby lives in San Diego in a small one-bedroom apartment. While he treasures his own personal space, he's lost something significant in San Diego. He lost that great joy of hosting people in his home. When I saw him a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that to him. Somehow he needs to find a way to host more often because, because he, like all of us, needs those spaces, those times, those moments that bring us true joy. I have another friend, Doug, who comes across as serious-minded and the embodiment of a New England preppy. A professional singer, his speech is polished. Even his body movements has, have the careful intentionality of someone who's on stage for a living. But as I got to know Doug better, one thing came out again and again. Doug, in his heart, is really, really goofy. You would never guess it from casual interactions, but when he lets his guard down and he allow, when, he, when he allows that polished exterior to fall away, he has moments that are so free of intentionality that it reminds you of a child. And he loves being goofy and creative at the same time. Doug went through this period where he would make YouTube videos entirely in a character that he spontaneously invented. These videos were not intended for any audience. Doug just felt compelled to invent a persona and do improv in the most, in the most ridiculous manner. <laughs> His videos are hilarious. Most of all, you can see how much joy he has while he's making them. And the same trait comes out with his interactions with friends. Doug is the person who will climb up a mountain, only to strip off his shirt, beat his chest, and let loose a Whitman-esque barbaric yelp. Because, why not? It brings him joy. And it's a reflection of who God calls him to be. When you walk into Riva's Italian restaurant in Montrose during the Christmas season, you are surrounded by the kitschiest, most outrageous, over-the-top Christmas decorations I've ever seen in my entire life. By the way, has anyone been there, Rivas, during Christmas season? Okay, you, you can at least vouch for me, because I'm not joking here. It's worthwhile to go just to see the spectacle. It has to be the campiest place in all of Houston this time of year. And every time I walk in there during the Christmas season, it brings a smile to my face. But those Christmas decorations could only have come about as a true labor of love. The owner, at some point, for some reason, started decorating and collecting random Christmas things. Why? I don't really know for sure. But I would be willing to bet that it, that it was because of the joy that that brought him. I personally hate decorating. I have very little aesthetic taste. But some people love it. And for some people, expressing themselves through their physical environment, placing their own unique stamp on that space, on their space and on their clothes, brings them joy that bubbles up from deep inside. These things are not the typical exterior things which bring happiness. No, it's about something deeper than that about joy, about rejoicing in something that is you. Historically, in the Christian church, Advent was a penitential season. That's why the traditional liturgical color for Advent is purple, just as it is for Lent. Christians were meant to fast and pray for the four weeks that led up to the 12-day celebration of Christmas. The third Sunday in Advent, the Sunday with the rose or pink candle, was intended to be a break from the fast. It was a time to stop and rejoice in the coming of Christmas. 
Starting in the 6th century, the introit, or entrance song of the Mass for this Sunday in Advent, began with, a, began with the Latin word gaudete, rejoice. This is the Sunday for rejoicing. I can't think of a better analogy for our lives. In the midst of the seasons we endure, in the midst of our fasting and penitence, make time for joy. I don't mean external happiness. Holiday parties, lights in the heights, zoo lights, shopping, visiting Santa Claus in the mall, sledding on the snow in places that are not Houston. <laughs> These things are all great to do. They bring people a lot of happiness. But I'd encourage you also to consider not just happiness, but joy. What are those things for which, from which you derive internal joy? What are those things that excite you because they connect you with your vocation, your calling, your gifts, your talents, your passions? Joy grounds you in God by connecting you to the person that God made you to be. Is it the creative process like writing and working for social justice? The activities that filled Isaiah with divine joy? Is it pride with your, in, in your children and who they are? Is it hosting and creating spaces for others? Is it in decorating or creating silly YouTube videos or letting the essence of you come out in some other way? How do you honor God's presence in your life and in your very being? Find joy. Christmas meant a lot for my father. He owned two drugstores, so the Christmas season was by far his busiest time. Retail is not kind to workers during Advent. Or Advent's not kind of workers who work in retail during this period. He would leave his house at 7 a.m. and not, re not return until 12 hours later, seven days a week. Yet in the midst of the work burden and the social burdens of Christmas, my father did everything he could to make Christmas special for us kids. He lived for Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. He loved to come to the church and sing Silent Night by candlelight. He loved making oyster stew, which his father, had, which his father used to make. Most of all, he loved seeing the expression on our faces as we opened up each new gift. He wanted us to remember it as a special time, a treasured time with family. Those Christmases were a lot of work for my father and really stressful. But he wouldn't have traded it for anything else because they brought him so much joy. I pray for your joy this holiday season. May you, like Isaiah of old, find joy in your calling. May you search out that internal space from which joy bubbles up and overflows. Sure, in the midst of it, to give thanks to God, the source of that joy.
please be seated. I'd like us all now to take a time for quiet meditation. Think about those moments that you've lived in the past week, the past month, that have brought you true joy. Remember them, bring them vividly to mind, bring up the details of when it was that you felt the most joy. Think about where that came.